0: Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 140, Sonata Hermes McQuillan, Requiring more of Rule 407. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. Joining me on the podcast today is Professor Sanada Hermes McQuillan, an assistant professor at the Toro Law Center. Professor Hermes McQuillan and I discuss her most recent article, which is forthcoming in the Boston University Law Review, and is entitled, Limiting Limited Liability, requiring more than mere subsequence under Federal Rule of Evidence 407. Now, of course, if we're talking about Rule 407, we are indeed talking about subsequent remedial measures. And Professor Hermes McQuillan has provided in her article the definitive look at how different jurisdictions, different courts are treating Rule 407. Some courts, as you'll hear, take a strict textualist approach to applying Rule 407, whereas others take a more purposivist approach. That difference in interpretive methodology, in turn, has created disparate, inconsistent application of Rule 407 nationwide. Professor Hermes McCullin and I discuss this differing treatment and think about the best path forward for not only Rule 407, but the federal rules of evidence generally. I think that this is such a cool and important paper at the intersection of the federal rules of evidence and interpretive theory, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Hermes McQuillan today. Sonata, welcome to Excited Utterance.
1: Thank you, Alex, so much. I'm very excited to be here.
0: So your paper today focuses on subsequent remedial measures which is really a topic that always fascinates me Uh, and i want to begin maybe if our listeners don't have a background in evidence law with kind of a preliminary or just a baseline question and that is just to have you remind us what exactly is a subsequent remedial measure
1: sure so in a nutshell When we think about a subsequent remedial measure, it's an action that's taken by someone to prevent repetition of a previous harm. So when I'm teaching my students, the classic example I give them is the salting of an icy sidewalk after someone has slipped to prevent someone else from slipping. Because had you iced that sidewalk in the first place, that initial person would probably not have slipped.
0: Perfect. And generally stated, uh, let's continue to remind our listeners here, how do the federal rules of evidence treat these subsequent remedial measures?
1: So the federal rules of evidence prohibit the introduction of subsequent remedial measures as proof of fault or liability for the injury at issue in litigation, because their goal is to encourage people to engage in this type of social good, right? We want to have people do these beneficial behaviors. So if we hold them accountable, then they're less likely to engage in that behavior.
0: Perfect. Well, that seems simple enough, right? But your paper, which is such an insightful look at Rule 407, I couldn't recommend this paper to our listeners more highly. It notes that despite the facial simplicity of 407, courts have actually been somewhat inconsistent when applying Rule 407 in the courtroom. And specifically in your piece, you detail two cases that highlight that inconsistency. So I'll walk through those two cases. If you would, tell us first about the initial case that you discuss.
1: Sure. So the first case, which is a more recent case, it was decided in 2021. It's in Ray Daval, and it comes out of the Southern District of Ohio. And interestingly enough, it's a bellwether trial. So this is a multi district litigation against. These defendants, Dayvol and C.R. Bard, and if you do a quick Google, you will see that these manufacturers and developers of these medical devices, in particular, this specific suit was a hernia mesh, has been involved in thousands of lawsuits. So in this particular case, you have a plaintiff that's suing for injuries resulting from implantation of that allegedly defective hernia mesh device which is made of a particular material called polypropylene. The plaintiff alleged that they developed these intra-abdominal adhesions after their surgery in 2015 and claimed that the defendants knew that polypropylene was not suitable for permanent implantation in the human body and that they knew that the fibers within that material would increase an inflammatory response. So to support their argument, the plaintiff sought to introduce the defendant's responses to a federal drug administration audit in 2017 and a study that was initiated by the defendants in response to a European regulation related to surgical mesh. So these two documents, the plaintiff believed that it showed that defendants knew or at least were aware of the dangers associated with those fibers of the mesh prior to this plaintiff's surgery. As you can imagine, the defendants moved to exclude that evidence on several grounds, including that the documents were inadmissible subsequent remedial measures, since they were measures taken post-injury. So here we have a situation where the district court looked to both arguments, right? and found that the defendant's interpretation of 407 was overly broad, and concluded that 407 requires a nexus, right? Some type of connection between the injury itself and the measure that is done by the defendant. And so here, the district court concluded that the plaintiff's injury did not trigger the defendant's response to the FDA audit, And it didn't trigger the defendant's response to the study, right? It was the FDA that triggered it, and it was the European regulation that triggered it. And so because of that, neither of those would be excluded under 407.
0: And your paper notes that this case involving the surgical mesh, it's actually inconsistent with a case from a second jurisdiction. I mentioned this in the top of my first question. So what's the second case that highlights this inconsistency?
1: The second case, Klopek versus Federal Insurance Company, was decided by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in 2007. So it's a little bit older, but still relevant to highlight this point. It originated in the Western District of Wisconsin, and there the plaintiff sued a medical device manufacturer for injuries that they allegedly sustained as a result of plaintiff's unintended overuse of a cooling device that had been prescribed by their surgeon. So the plaintiff had undergone fusion surgery on their toe and was prescribed this device as part of their post-operative treatment to reduce swelling at the surgical site. Well, the plaintiff allegedly wore this cooling device continuously And unfortunately, that continuous use caused permanent damage to the tissue surrounding their operated toe. So ultimately, as a result of that damage, the tissue had to be amputated and essentially the plaintiff's toe was in a worse shape than it was originally. So at trial, the plaintiff alleged that the product was defective and that the manufacturer failed to warn against the continuous use of the device. And they wanted to introduce evidence that the manufacturer had changed the product's warning label after the plaintiff's injury, advising against continuous use. So the plaintiff essentially argued the manufacturer's label change was not related to safety concerns, and was not in response to that plaintiff's particular injury and so should not be considered a subsequent remedial measure. The district court denied the plaintiff's request and the Seventh Circuit affirmed. The Seventh Circuit looked to the language of Rule 407, looked to the plain meaning of the text of 407, and concluded that the defendant's motive for making the change was irrelevant, they actually used the words irrelevant. The Seventh Circuit determined that all rule 407 requires is that the subsequent measure decreases the likelihood of the injury. So as long as you have a post-injury measure and that measure decreases the likelihood of injury, 407 excludes it. And so ultimately the Seventh Circuit concluded that the evidence was inadmissible.
0: I want to follow up on on something that you just mentioned, and that's that the Seventh Circuit, when making this decision, it was looking at the text of Rule 407. And I'm curious, as I'm listening to that, what is the ambiguity in the text that's driving the different outcomes in these different jurisdictions? What's the language, if I phrase this question differently, in Rule 407 that courts are perhaps reading differently to produce these different results?
1: So the rule says when measures are taken... That would have made an earlier injury or harm less likely to occur, evidence of the subsequent measures is not admissible to prove, liability, fault, et cetera. So, in my mind, it seems to be unclear whether the subsequent remedial measure, the measure that would have made the earlier injury or harm less likely, whether it has to be in response to the particular injury at issue at trial, meaning it's unclear whether there needs to be a causal connection between the harm and the measure required, right? Because it's simply saying when measures are taken, but it doesn't make it clear whether it has to be measures taken as a result of the earlier injury.
0: So let's turn now to interpretive theory to explore this a bit further, because I'm curious, how do you think a textualist judge would resolve that ambiguity, would read Rule 407?
1: Well, as we know, textualists are very strong proponents of, look at the language itself. What do the words mean in the plain meaning of the language? And so as we saw in the CLOPEC opinion, when you take literally those words from 407, so long as a measure is taken after disputed injury, and that measure would make that injury less likely if it had existed in the first place, then it should be excluded.
0: And what about a proposivist judge? Do they, I assume, read 407 differently?
1: They do. So a proposivist judge looks at intent, the purpose that the drafters had when they created or wrote that statute. And that should inform not only the reading of the statute's language, but also the application of that statute. So as we saw in the Daval case, since the intent behind the rule is to encourage people to engage in socially beneficial behavior, it doesn't make sense to exclude evidence of a measure that has no connection to the injury at issue.
0: Perfect. So that's kind of the baseline, right? That's the state of affairs, if you will, descriptively in these different jurisdictions and in textualist and purposivist camps. Now, of course, I want to turn to your opinion and your view in your paper. So first, maybe if we look at the textualist reading, what's your opinion on that?
1: So to me, a textual reading of the rule is overly broad, considering the rationale for drafting the rule in the first place. Because not only does it over-exclude potentially relevant evidence, but it potentially excludes probative evidence from consideration and allows, in my opinion, for unlimited requests to shield any evidence subsequent to an injury-causing event so long as the measure would have made the injury or harm less likely to occur. And to me, that result is illogical and it begs for a method of interpretation that avoids, in essence, an absurd result.
0: So clear problems with the textualist reading. I think I agree with you there. Is it safe to say then that you're gravitating towards the purposivist interpretation of Rule 407?
1: Absolutely. I believe that a purposivist approach prevents 407 from becoming a rule of unlimited exclusion, while still encouraging public safety, because that was why the drafters created 407 in the first place. So it allows the rule to remain true to the ideals behind not only the rule itself, but the federal rules of evidence as a whole, as intended by Congress.
0: And if you'll indulge me for a second, I want to expand our conversation beyond Rule 407 for just one question because I'm curious, as we're talking about textualism and purposivism, do you think that judges should perhaps adopt a purposivist reading of other evidentiary rules, not just rule 407 as well. I mean, I'm certainly one who falls in that camp. My scholarship has been encouraging a more progressive proposivist reading of the rules. And I'm curious if you see other areas where proposivism might take hold in evidence law. I mean,
1: aren't we all textualists now? (laughs) Or only when (laughs) it suits us. According to the
0: justices, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist that one.
0: Fantastic.
1: I'm going to sound like a typical lawyer right now, because of course, I think we need to start with the text in the sense of, let's see what the language says. But in my mind, there's a purpose, there's a goal behind those words. And when we look to the federal rules as a whole, the goal of the federal rules of evidence is to ensure fairness and justice through consistency. And I emphasize consistency. And so that purpose should mean something. And if the federal rules of evidence was the result of a significant amount of time, the writing, the rewriting of the rules to ensure that that goal was met, and that the policies that drove those rules was met, to have a judge read a rule plainly and kind of contradict the policy behind the rule, in my mind, is troubling which is one of the reasons why I loved your article that called for living evidentiary theory, because thinking about rules from not only a purposivist perspective, but also a holistic perspective, I think makes a lot of sense.
0: Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. and I couldn't agree with you more. I think that holistic approach accounting for both text and purpose is what could really rejuvenate not just rule 407, but evidence law as a whole. I have one final question for you. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I've been so interested in your take on Rule 407. I'm curious, you have such a definitive look on the rule. What's next for the literature? It might not be on 407. This might be the 407 article. But is there another type of paper that could shed further light on this issue or an adjacent issue?
1: You know, as you can imagine, I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) At the moment, I'm looking at whether... Revising rules is the solution. And I know that's dangerous territory. And that's kind of what I'm exploring right now. I don't have a clear answer for that yet. But I can't help but think that if courts are going to continue to look at the rules through a textual lens, which we know is going to happen, and will lead to further splits in authority, then... I'm exploring how do we ensure that the language of the rules really encompass their true purpose. That's kind of where I'm heading right now.
0: Well, Sonata, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it.
0: As I mentioned at the top of the podcast... I think Professor Hermes McQuillan's paper provides such an excellent opportunity for us to really consider the intersection of evidence law and interpretive theory. Now, initially, you might think that evidence law is something of an odd nexus for deep conversations about interpretation. After all, the federal rules of evidence are supposed to be quite straightforward, a code that you can quickly apply in the courtroom with minimal ambiguity as to how the application is actually supposed to work. And yet, as you scan the Rules of Evidence, you can pretty quickly see how interpretive methodology is going to be outcome determinative for many admissibility determinations. Take the most common example that is often pointed to in the Federal Rules of Evidence. That would be Rule 410. Now, under the text of Rule 410, statements made during plea negotiations or plea plea offers are inadmissible against the defendant who participated. But that language against the defendant who participated, that, of course, gives rise to an oddity. What about if a plea offer is not offered against a defendant at trial, but it's offered by a defendant against the prosecution? At least from a textual standpoint, that use does not fit within the exclusionary scope of Rule 410. But, of course, from a purposivist perspective, This evidence shouldn't be admitted at all. The purpose of Rule 410, the policy that Congress was trying to further, was to foster frank, open, honest plea negotiations. And if a prosecutor is afraid that every statement that she makes during plea negotiations, every plea offer that she proffers that that is going to later be used against her at trial, well, that's going to have a huge chilling effect on the plea negotiation process generally, counteracting Congress's policy again. And therefore, the proposivist judge would say, hey, we're going to expand the exclusionary scope of Rule 410 to not just encompass statements made by the defendant and offered against the defendant, but also statements made by the prosecution offered against the prosecution. And yet, Rule 410 is far from anomalous in constituting a juncture where interpretive methodology, particularly this distinction between textualism and purposivism, is going to prove outcome determinative for admissibility determinations. You also see this same phenomenon at play with Rule 408 dealing with settlement negotiations, with Rule 411, dealing with evidence of liability insurance, even with Rule 801, defining what is or is not hearsay. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg. I think that from a holistic standpoint, interpretive theory and interpretive methodology yields disparate admissibility outcomes all the way through the federal rules of evidence. So as evidence scholars, or just listeners generally interested in evidence law, I think we should be increasingly attuned to the importance of interpretive theory in the field of evidence law generally. Not only is that going to be important for how the federal rules of evidence, the existing code, is currently applied day to day in courtrooms across the country, but interpretive theory is also going to define the future of evidence law. Moving forward... Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program and the University of Arkansas School of Law. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kira Hammond, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle-Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, and I hope you will join us again next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.